Hi, this is Nichelle Nichols, and you're listening to TV Confidential. Aren't we all lucky? Roberts with a reminder that Kathy Garver will join us later on this hour. We have to stay tuned for that. In the meantime, on the line with us right now is Mark Cushman. Mark's books on television include These Are the Voyages, Volumes 1, 2, and 3, an epic-length biography of Star Trek, the original series that goes where no book on film or television has ever gone before. Volume 1 of These Are the Voyages, recently revised and expanded to include another 80 pages, including... 50 additional rare photographs, some of which have never been published before or seen before, plus new exclusive interviews, including some of the final thoughts and observations from Leonard Nimoy before he passed away in 2015. And as Mark just mentioned, more of those classic memos from Robert Justman. Uh, These are the Voyages, Volumes 1. Star Trek, the original series, available in hardcover, paperback, and as an ebook through Amazon.com, where books are sold online. These are the Voyages, Volume 1, also available as an audiobook through JacobsBrownMedia.com. Uh, these are my other two takeaways from Volume 1, Mark. One of these we touched on before. Gene was truly a visionary, and I'm not just thinking in terms of Star Trek, but going back to his, the decade before Star Trek, where he was trying to make his mark as a writer and as a producer. Many of the shows that he pitched and wrote treatments for were shows that were eventually produced on television many years later, including uh, one that was either owned or redeveloped by CBS. He pitched an early version of The Love Boat, and he pitched an early version of Murder, She Wrote. That's right, and, and a thing that wasn't too unlike MASH. Yeah. So, again, uh, you talk about a guy who was prolific, and as we talked about in our conversation about his career in the 70s, he had great ideas, they just weren't right. Timing, and that's half the battle. It's, I mean, timing is everything in film and television or any sort of publishing venture. Right. And, and when he came up with his idea for Love Boat, which I can't remember offhand what it was called, it's in, it's in the book there, he wasn't visionizing it as the love boat that we later got. No. Uh, you know, where it's just a bunch of funny little vignettes uh, kind of stuck together. No, it was an adventure series called Hawaiian Passage. That's and it. It would have taken place on an ocean liner, but it kind of would have been like riverboat in a way, in that it right. would be action and intrigue. Yeah, he just, because he saw uh, Star Trek in the same light. He saw, well, you put 400 people on this starship and send them out there, like on the South Seas, going from island to island, they're out in space going from planet to planet, you've got not only the, the almost an unlimited potential of storylines with who they're going to encounter out there and what's going to happen, but also from just within the ship, from these 430 personalities on the ship. So you've got all these characters that you can bring forward and all these different story uh, openings. Uh, and he thought the same thing with this uh, Hawaiian Passage by being on, a, on a, uh, an ocean liner. You've got the recurring crew. You've got the captain. You've got his first mate, just like on Star Trek, the whole bit. Uh, you're out there traveling from one place to another, and it's different locales, different societies where you, you go, but you've also got these different passengers. Wagon Train, and he, and he described Star Trek as Wagon Train to the Stars because Wagon Train was the same way. Each season, if anybody remembers... Um, Wagon Train, not just generally, but if you remember watching it, 
uh, each season they, they would start on the East Coast and they would go all the way to the West. And, and you could see people who were featured in some episodes might pop up in another episode because it was basically a wagon of 50 wagons and, and different people on it uh, that you would, could meet again. And then for the next season, they would start the trip over with a whole, new, whole fresh group of, of wagons and people, but the same uh, wagon master and his, his trusted colleagues. So Gene was kind of looking for ways to do shows of that type. So his love boat would have been very different. And going back to the quote-unquote early version of MASH kind of sort of that he pitched to, uh, I think, uh, CBS at the time. It was a project that was based on Tales of the South Pacific by James Michener, which is a collection of stories. And Roddenberry, in his inimitable way, said that, okay, everyone thinks of South Pacific, because that was the musical version with Mitzi Gaynor and this, that, and the other thing. But he says, when you think about it, there are better stories to draw from, and that's what he was trying to do with the show called APL 923. Which was the post office, uh, military post office in, in the Philippines, uh, I believe, uh, during World War II. He, and so he was going to use that as the central point, because everybody on the base would come for their mail, so it would be a way of meeting all the various people for uh, the guest stars and for the individual stories and, and so on. Just the same way MASH could do it with the uh, wounded people being flown in by chopper and, and we meet them and get involved in their stories and so forth. So, uh, yeah, he was, uh, I mean, he really was a terrific creator of shows. He really had a knack for coming up with ideas that could have gone five years or more. And in Star Trek, that's why it was a five-year mission. <laughs> so they were hoping for five seasons. <laughs> and the irony is that uh, APO 923, the early version of MASH that was based on uh, Michener's Tales of the South Pacific, that actually went to series. And CBS announced that it was going to be part of the Thursday night lineup in 1961, but it got bumped by Perry Mason when CBS decided to move Perry Mason to Thursday nights. Had Roddenberry developed that show a little later on in his career when he's more established, I don't think that would have happened, but, you know, we wouldn't have Star Trek. So Sure. And he had another one that had been bought by the network called Nightstick. Uh, and I think it's got a title change, but it was about a, a cop on the beat. Mm -hmm. Roddenberry being an ex-cop, you know, mm -hmm. he was very perfect one to do that. They did a pilot, and it was bought by the network, and it was given a slot for the fall, and then they did a shift of uh, moving shows around, and it ended up getting bumped, and it never even got on the air. But uh, So, yeah, he came very close with a couple of his pilot films uh, before The Lieutenant, which was the first one that actually got produced and lasted for a season with Gary Lockwood as the lieutenant in uh, Camp Pendleton. And as you'll see, if you read Volume 1 of These Are the Voyages, or if you listen to Volume 1 of These Are the Voyages on audio tape, there are many, many, many connections between the lieutenant and Star Trek above and beyond Gary Lockwood. These are the Voyages Volume 1, available in hardcover, paperback, ebook, and now audiobook through our friends at Jacobs Brown Media Group. This is my third takeaway. When, when I think of Roddenberry, I think of the great storyteller. I think of the guy who, you know, was sort of integral in building up the fan fury behind the scenes, both when Star Trek was in production and, of course, when the convention started happening in the 70s, he became a rock star when he gave talks at those yeah. things. The big surprise, Mark, is that early on, Gene was much better on paper 
than he was as a pitch man. It, it, it was terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I knew him, and, and I pitched to him. But he almost, he came off as kind of a, an eccentric uh, mad scientist sometimes. <laughs> uh, he fumbled around with words a lot. He would stutter a lot. He was not very good at verbal presentation. Yeah. He became better yeah. in the 70s because that's when he started doing the lecture tours. Mm-hmm. But he would write himself a 20-page uh, lecture speech, and he would have it up there that he could refer to uh, as he was going through it. But no, he was not a great pitcher, and that, that's why when he brought Star Trek into Desi Lu to Her- Herb Solo and Oscar Katz, the two executives there working for Lucy, and she gave it the green light, and so Oscar Katz went with Gene Roddenberry to CBS and pitched it to them first, and both of them just fell on their face. And so then Herb Solo said, okay, I'm going with you to NBC. And he went in, and he kind of led the pitch. You know, Roddenberry was there to answer any questions and everything else, but Herb uh, knew what the pitch was. And he was a former network guy who had mm-hmm. worked at NBC, so he knew these guys. So he was in a much better place to verbally deliver the presentation and then have Gene follow it up. Gene was just great as a writer both writing, creating and writing scripts and series, but also giving notes. His memos were so good. Mm-hmm. The notes he would give all the other writers on these, these things. But as far as verbal presentation, no, no, no awards there. Well, this being the 30th anniversary of the passing of Lucille Ball, Mark, I think we should spend just a few minutes underscoring just how vital, integral Lucy was to Star Trek being on the air in the first place. It's a fascinating story, too. You know, this first book, when I did it, my, Jacobs Brown thought it was going to be one book, ended up being <laughs> three, one for each season, season one, two, three, because it's just it's such a rich story, and there's so much there. And, and the first book gives you Gene Roddenberry's backstory, and then, then he brings it into Desi Lu, and we meet Lucille Ball there, and we find out what's going on with her. And her backstory is great as well. She and uh, Desi did I Love Lucy, and he was the real genius behind I Love Lucy, Desi Arnaz. Mm -hmm. He came up with the three-camera shoot in front of a studio audience. He invented that. Nobody had been doing that yet, and doing it on film. And CBS didn't want to pay for the film. They wanted him to do it live, like the Honeymooners did out of New York City. But he didn't want to do it on a soundstage in Hollywood for better production quality, with a studio audience for a good natural laugh track, but he wanted to use three film cameras and then go in and edit from those three different angles, and that's very expensive, much more expensive than they were doing it back then when it was live and done on kinescope. In order to do it, he said, well, I'll pay the difference. I'll pay for the extra cost if I can have the rerun rights, and CBS said, "Uh, sure, Uh, what's a rerun? (laughs) There had never been a rerun, because everything was live. And, and Kinescope, as you know, they would film it off a TV set on mm-hmm. the West Coast mm-hmm. to air in a later time slot. But it was all done live with those big, bulky video cameras. And so he did I Love Lucy, which is why it looks so much better than the other sitcoms that were being done at the same time, like The Honeymooners. And they, so they had the rerun rights that nobody thought would be worth anything. And then suddenly it's rerunning five nights a week. It's doing great, and the money's coming in. And so they used that money, Desi and Lucy used the money to buy Desi Lu, which was RKO. They bought the studio, 
and turned it into Desilu Studios. And everybody wanted to come shoot their sitcoms there. Mm -hmm. Everybody, uh, Danny Thomas, everyone wanted to come and have their sitcoms look as good as I Love Lucy did. And then uh, Desi and Lucy uh, divorced, uh, still loved each other to the day they died. But the marriage fell apart, and uh, so he left as president of the studio, and she took over. And he had taught her that the way to be successful was to own the show, not just have other shows come in and use our stages, but for us to own a show. And so she kind of put the word out to her lieutenants, Herb Solo and Oscar Katz, find me uh, a show that can live as long as I Love Lucy in reruns. And what they brought to her was Star Trek. She spotted it. She spotted it as something that could go the distance. And that is why she ultimately gave the green light and supported production of it, despite the fact that it was a very, very expensive show to produce at the time, and it posed a lot of risk. But as you say, she believed it was the sort of thing Desi would have done if Desi were sitting in her chair. She was right completely. I mean, the two most successful shows in the history of television are I Love Lucy and Star Trek. As far as reruns are concerned, that's probably changing now with Seinfeld and, you know, and a few other shows like that. But they, they were the champions for decades. And so she was absolutely right. But so were the old guard. The old guard tried to convince her not to do it because they said, we can't afford this type of a show. It's going to be deficit financing with every episode. It's going to cost more than the network's going to give us. And so the only way we're going to get our money back is by getting enough episodes produced to have a good, solid rerun package. So halfway into the production of the series, halfway into the second season, Desilu went broke, and she had to sell to Paramount, which was just a, a horrible time for her because that's all she had left of her marriage. So there's, again, the drama comes out of the story. And the story is all told in These Are the Voyages, Star Trek, the original series, Volume 1 on the first season, Volume 2 on the second season, Volume 3 on the third season, These Are the Voyages, Star Trek, the original series, the three-volume biography of the original Star Trek, written by our friend Mark Cushman, available in hardcover, paperback, and as an ebook through jacobsbrownmedia.com, amazon.com, wherever books are sold online. Volume 1, these are the voyages also available as audiobook. What are you working on next, Mark? I'm finishing up the, the second of the two book set that covers the 1970s. I took a break from Star Trek for a while, and I did the Irwin Allen books, and I did a biography on the Moody Blues, because nobody had ever done one, and it just blew me away. Mm -hmm. And they were being uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame, and I thought, well, we need a biography out on them. And so that was a lot of fun. And then I got back onto the Star Trek path uh, because I'd always intended to continue with the story. And so the new two-book set covers the 1970s, which is the animated series, the first movie, the coming of the conventions, the boom in syndication, and why it took so long for the series to come back, all the behind-the-scenes stuff and memos that tell you what was really going on during that entire process. The first one of those is out which covers 1970 through 75, and the second one is what I'm working on right now. It's written, I'm just rewriting it, and we're going to edit it, illustrate it, and have it out in time for Christmas. Well, we will look forward to its release. In the meantime, uh, Mark Cushman, it's always good to have you on our program. I look forward to our next conversation. I do, too, and I hope we talk more about Perry Mason <laughs> and The Fugitive. I would love to talk to you about The Fugitive. I've been watching that show just at night to uh, relax and fall asleep to, and so I'm going to be getting your book. It's the kind of book, in a way, I wish I wrote it with the knowledge and experience 
that I have now when I wrote it 25 years ago. Yeah, I mean, it was your first book. Yeah. We, we, we learned. Yeah. I mean, I was lucky. My first book was I Spy, and, and Bob Cope was so helpful, and it was authorized through the estate, so I had access to everything. So I got to kind of hit the, the pavement running yeah. with memos and all that kind of support. I'm, I'm thrilled that I did not try to write the Star Trek book first because I couldn't have handled it. Yeah, well, nobody succeeds in the vacuum, and I had the help of uh, Roy Huggins, and I had the help of a lot of behind-the-scenes people who gave me as close of a sense of what it was like to be on the scenes, even though I was still learning how to do this at the time. So uh, I share that experience. One final thing. This is apropos of nothing. You were born in San Diego, but you grew up in Tillamook, Oregon. Tillamook, Tillamook Oregon. Tillamook Cheese. Actually, I grew up in a small town called Hebo on a dairy farm. Uh, outside of Tillamook, and we took cans of milk to uh, the creamery, to Tillamook, for their cheese and their ice cream. And so that's where I spent my childhood in the 60s, is growing up on a farm up in Oregon. Well, Tillamook is three hours north of Reedsport. Reedsport carries us Saturdays on KDUN. All right. Well, hello, everybody in Oregon. <laughs> I'm, I'm moving back to Oregon one day. I always say, when I retire... You know, I'm going back up there to Oregon. I loved living in Oregon. It was especially along the coast and in the farm communities. It was just beautiful country, and you could hear the rain on the roof every night. And I just, I just loved it up there. Great people. And I understand you also spent part of your life at one point in the San Francisco Bay Area. Yeah. Well, my fa- my my father traveled, so I I lived in uh, from San Diego. We went to um, Hawaii and New Mexico, and then up to uh, uh, Oregon, and then and, and Washington State, uh, up in that area, and then down, Spokane area. And then we went down to um, San Francisco, and then I came to L.A. when I was old enough to drive and pursue my career as a writer, and I knew I had to come to Los Angeles. And uh, so all those great places I lived, and I ended up in L.A. But now I'm up on a mountaintop outside of L.A., so <laughs> I got the beautiful scenery again. When did you live in San Francisco? We, I lived in Sausalito. Okay, all right. And, and that was during the um, uh, the mid-'70s. Okay. I was in my, my teens. Our biggest reach geographically happens to be in the San Francisco Bay Area. We have stations based in Half Moon Bay, as well as the Santa Cruz area. So, oh, Half Moon Bay is great. It's gorgeous. I had some hippie friends who lived in Half Moon Bay. <laughs> I used to go hang with all the time, back in the mid-'70s when I lived up in there. Love that area. Well, thank you for letting me ask about that. That gives me a chance to indulge my affiliates. So, <laughs> <laughs> And for us to get nostalgic. Yeah. Okay. All right, Ed, it's always a pleasure. I look forward to the next time. Thank you. I'll keep and writing books so we can keep having excuses to talk. Kathy Garver will join us when we come back on TV Confidential. Become an advertiser or underwriter of TV Confidential and let our brand help promote your brand. To find out more, Go to televisionconfidential.com slash advertise. Are payday loans ruining your life? Do you want control over your money again? If you have two or more payday loan cash advances, listen closely. You may be eligible for a program payday loan companies don't want you to know about. A program that may help get aggressive and unfair payday loan companies out of your bank account and get you back on track to financial freedom. 
Payday loan companies may trap you into paying outrageously high interest rates, and they take way too much of your hard-earned money every week. We understand their tactics and know how to keep them off your back. We'll fight hard to help you regain control of your money. If you have two or more Payday Loan Cash Advances, call right now for a free consultation. 800-488-5880. That's 800-488-5880. Hi, this is Rhonda Shear, and you're staying up all night or day with TV Confidential. Buying or selling a home can be one of the most stressful things we'll ever do in life, but it doesn't have to be. And no one knows better than our friends at Front Porch Realty Group. They're a community of realtors serving the Northern Bay Area of California that cares about their clients as individuals first and foremost. Whether you're a first-time buyer or looking to lease or sell your property in the Bay Area, Front Porch Realty Group will help you through this important transition by providing you with the right information for your situation while lessening the pain. They also work with a network of realtors throughout California who provide the same high caliber of customer service. Call Front Porch Realty Group at 415-886-7411 for a realtor referral near you. You can also visit their website, frontporchrealtygroup.com, for more information on the services they provide including upcoming workshops and seminars. For more information, call 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com. Front Porch Realty Group. They'll find the solution that works best for you. Uber is the mobile app that connects you with a driver for immediate transportation. Request a ride at the tap of a button and you have a driver curbside in minutes. You can choose to be driven in a black car, SUV, or you can choose UberX, the low-cost Uber for a ride in a hybrid or mid-range car. Payment is seamless and cashless. Build to your card on file with no need to tip. Enter the promo code TV Confidential after you download the app to receive a free first ride up to $20. For more information, go to get.uber.com forward slash go forward slash TV Confidential. Be part of our conversation. If you like what you hear, have thoughts on this week's program, or have an idea for a future edition of TV Confidential, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at talk at tvconfidential.net, talk at tvconfidential.net. You can also message us at facebook.com forward slash tvconfidential, x.com forward slash tvconfidential, or at TV Confidential on Instagram. And if you're listening to us on the TV Confidential podcast, please be sure to hit the subscribe button. This portion of TV Confidential is brought to us by our friends at Front Porch Realty, the community of realtors in the Northern Bay Area of California that is committed to finding the solution that is best for their clients. Whether you're a first-time home buyer or looking to sell or lease your property in Northern California, call Karen Strain at 415-886-7411 or visit frontporchrealtygroup.com for more information on how they can help you.